You know, when we do these Advent series, uh, we usually pick a theme and then um, divide out the topics. And as we were going through these passages, uh, Russ said, well, I'll do the coming reunion. And Duke said, I'll do the coming victory. And I got the coming judgment. <laughs> so I'm the bad elf this year. Uh, but seriously, it's uh, a fair thing to preach on because it's a theme that runs through the book of Revelation. The angels open the bowls, they open the seals, the trumpets. It's a serious theme that runs through the book of Revelation, a book of worship. Can you worship God without revering his judgment? I don't think so. But also, without judgment, there is no reunion. There's no victory. But that's something that it's hard for us to get on board with. I think if we're honest, when we hear, Rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints, for God has given judgment for you against her. I find that my joy has to do with how connected I am to Babylon myself. You know, bring the judgment away. Not that area. Not that place right there. Um, and to be sure, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. It says that. In fact... Jesus delays, if we can use that word, his second advent, because he hopes more and more will turn to him. That's why God is waiting. If you find yourself saying, how long? It's his mercy that makes him. But it's also, I think, our cultural, cultural location. Maybe. Some of us. I'll say with my case it is. Um, Croatian-born theologian Miroslav Volf, who's at Yale, made the observation that Often people that have been raised in the quiet suburbs of the West struggle the most with the idea of God's judgment. But for those that have had their cities leveled, their daughters and their mothers assaulted, their brothers and fathers executed, the idea that God would not be angered and judged is a God not worthy to worship. And we might ask, what about forgiveness? Well, you know, the Christian gospel teaches, uh, it doesn't teach that um, God forgives sin and forsakes justice. Rather, the gospel teaches that God actually brings that justice upon himself and the person of his son. And so it's really the truth of justice and judgment that makes the gospel so sweet and so unique. So... It is something, though, that we live with every day as we look at the world and the tragic reality of the wickedness and evil that we open up to today. You know, I, I, I was just reading the headlines from one of the papers online, and I was like, good night. You know, this is just one day, right? And the more we uh, see and feel and bear that burden, as God's people, we get weary. We get tired. And we need the second coming of the Lord uh, to be not just a future thing, but an ever-present thing for us as we're thinking about every day, the reality of that. And that brings us to the topic of Babylon and the judgment of Babylon. But before we delve into that, two points I want to bring this morning uh, some context helps us here because the book of Revelation 
is uh, some thick gravy, and it, 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 takes some, it takes some work to get into it. So let's just do a little bit here. Uh, it was Tolkien who said uh, that shadow, his symbol of evil, can only mock, not make. That means evil cannot create, it can only mutate. It can only parody what's there. And so that accounts for this bizarro world that we find in the book of Revelation, where you have the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then you have the unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, which represents worldly powers, the false prophet, which represents religion as a tool of the state. And it's these that are contrasted together. But not only the players are contrasted, but there are two places that are contrasted. One is Zion, the city of God, and the other is Babylon. And while Babylon was an ancient city, historical city, it's representing more in the book of Revelation. It's representing the hub of self-indulgence and self-ambition. It's the consumer culture at all costs. That's what, that's what Babylon represents here. And we see it, right, as, as uh, Russ read through the passage, acquiring gold, silver, jewels, flour, horses, chariots. I love um, how that scripture goes into such detail. All these things that we would say, that, good things. I love that spice. You know, I love my chariot. You, you, you put the pieces together on that one, you know, <laughs> your car or whatever it is, you know. You know, I love this, I love this as we go down the list, but then the cost, exploitation of human beings, right? Human souls, as we're told. People, the inhabitants of uh, Babylon, use it like a harlot. And this is why in chapter 17, Babylon is actually described as a harlot who's tricked out and scarlet and jewels alluring those that are driven by their sensual pleasures while she drinks the blood of those that were sent to her with a saving message. And that portrait of Babylon, rather than a slight on our female uh, sisters and gender, it actually serves as a depiction of men's lusts and greed, not unlike pornography. So in contrast, we find a city of God that's depicted as a stunning bride, clothed in bright light, the place of grace and service and love, not using and objectifying. But if we celebrate Babylon's judgment, we have to understand just a little bit more the meaning of it, the Babylon without and the Babylon within. And so let's look at those two things together. First of all, the Babylon without. Again, a little context helps us here. Uh, one uh, theologian says, as he's giving us a picture of Rome in the first century, the, the kings of the earth grew rich through the concentration of power in the Roman Empire, and they built their states on the backs of slaves. Merchants and sailors stood to profit from the trade in luxury items. And so that's where you see reflected, right? Kings, merchants, sailors, musicians, artisans. It's happening at all levels of society. It's organic in nature. And at the same time, it's coordinated in effort. Because you see, as you know, there's this collusion, there's this cooperation between the culture and the state. The pleasure addicted society conspires with the power addicted state. 
All this to say that evil and sin is systematic and systemic. I went and said a bad word, didn't I? Because that's a trigger word for some Christians, right? It's a trigger word, but let me just calm you down here. Let me just calm you down for a second. So I can, I, I can sort of put it in context for you, you know, uh, because we can get, you know, we can get so gyrated with the culture, we lose our theological minds. This is just a biblical idea I'm talking about here, but in case you don't believe the Bible, I know that you'll believe organized crime. So let me explain what I mean. Uh, you know, some of, I don't know if you've ever seen that show, I just watched one or two of it called Secrets of the Dead. Now it sounds really scary, but they just go back in history and look at certain things, and this one was uh, looking back at um, the gangster Dutch Schultz. And it was funny, the guy they're interviewing, it probably wasn't funny at all, was actually one of his strong arms, one of his bad dudes that used to do his business. But now he's like 95. And they're interviewing the guy. And, and as you're looking at him, he's actually still playing the role. He's got like this shiny suit on. Like the pants are up to here now. You know, he's, he's got a hat. He's wearing sunglasses. He's wearing sunglasses, and he's talking about the old days. His son is actually dressed just like him. I don't know why, but he is. But one of the things was, you know, in the 20s, when organized crime got its start as organized crime, it was Lucky Luciano who said, wait a second, we need, we need to systematize this evil. We need to make it systemic. We need to make it systematic together. And so their context were families, right? That's how they thought of it. So we're going to have five families. And those five families are going to work things out. That's why old uh, Dutch Schultz got knocked off, because he didn't want to play into the system. My point is this. Don't get freaked out by words like systematic and system. Sin by nature is systematic. Sin by nature is systemic. It just is. It's everywhere. And it's certainly present in our world, and sadly, we see it in our day. As this theologian I quoted before, this is Vern Poitras, goes on, analogous in our present modern society, those who are in positions of power, whether in government, industry, commerce, entertainment, grow rich frequently through unscrupulous practices. Others profit from serving those in power Typically, such people cannot bear to see a change in status quo, for it threatens the comfort of position, of power, and of their position. Now, sadly, we don't have to reach back too far into our national story to see the spirit of Babylon, a country that was built on the backs of slaves and exploited immigrants. But what's tragic, too, is the church's complicity. Remember, I mentioned the false prophet, and the false prophet is the voice of religion serving the means of the culture and the state. And that got me thinking about um, uh, this book, Reparations. Have you heard of this book, Reparations? <laughs> a little-known author named Duke Kwan. Um, but there's a story in there that's just chilling. It's about a Presbyterian church in Virginia that financed their pastor's salary and their own tithes by leasing slaves that they had purchased. Think, how in the world does that happen? Well, I have no doubt the false prophet gave them language 
by which to whitewash and justify so they could leave Sunday service with a smile. And it's the same voice as well, not unlike words that have been given to the white evangelical church, the descendants, that benefit from that system and yet interpret it as blessing from God. Or the church collective, as we uh, move ahead with the project to believe that our hope is actually found in electing a Christian beast. But this alliance, this alliance of worldly power, worldly religion, worldly culture is formidable, and that's why it's so weary. How do you stand up against that? Stand up against that sort of alliance? For those that suffer under it, for those that seek to resist it and defeat it, history on repeat feels hopeless. One tyrant is deposed, another comes up. One trafficker is caught, another comes up. Scandal after scandal, scheme after scheme. It gets wearying for us, doesn't it? Come, Lord Jesus, come yesterday. Come last year. Hear the cries of the oppressed. That's what we heard in our passage. And he does every time righteousness and justice prevail, every time you hear rejoicing in a courtroom, every time we find a woman delivered from her state of bondage. But what a day it will be when that never, ever, ever happens again. What a day that will be when the world's no longer stained with the evil of oppression. What a day it will be when we wake up and we walk in that city and there's no worry. No worry about how power might act upon me, act upon you. Just as Babylon inflicted double upon its victims, the Lord will be just and inflict double upon it. And that great prosperous city will become like a graveyard. It will become a haunt, as we're told, and we're say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And the reason you and I can believe that happened is because he came once. He came already. He came in the flesh. He came in person. As Russ said, he didn't come remotely. He came on his own. He came to suffer. He came to give us a taste of the city of God for three years. He died. He rose. And he's going to come back and finish the job. He's going to bring that judgment. You and I will live in a city. We will live in a culture where there's no more Babylon. I'll tell you, I, I get uh, excited because I, I know about the Babylon within, too, not just without. Uh, the book of Revelation teaches that Satan has a two-pronged approach, persecution from without and seduction within what Babylon represents. That's why the Lord says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Like Lot's wife, who's tempted to look back at Sodom every day, right? <laughs> we look back. The beast is security at any cost. The false prophet is lies at any cost. And Babylon is pleasure at any cost. And don't you feel it? I feel it. You're right? in our hearts this battle when our, our desires are in overdrive. When our minds are filled like a billboard of Babylon. Uh, when our heads just turn at every offer. Our hearts just leaping and feeling this. The lust we feel, the vision we have for success, 
of comfort and prosperity and the temptation to use our city as a launch pad or a playground, a place for us to basically just live out our Babylonian dream. There are days, it's, it's, the promises and enticements are endless and they feel relentless. And there are days, my friends, where I'm just so tired of my, so tired of the things I struggle. I'm so tired of the temptations that I give into again. Weary of it. And I'm thinking that you feel that as well. You feel that fatigue. But beloved, I want to remind you that that struggle is evidence of God in you. Because, you know, those that have no Christ in them only mourn over Babylon because they've lost their prosperities. They've lost their idols. They've lost the things that they lust after. That's the only mourning. But we're told, blessed are those that mourn, right, for the kingdom and mourn for sin. And just as we echo with the Apostle Paul, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep doing. What a wretched man am I. We also echo, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The struggle itself is proof of the presence and the grace of God in you. Don't stop fighting. Don't stop struggling. The devil works hard to make you feel like the struggle is a loss. He makes it feel like as you fight, it's condemnation. You know, you shouldn't, even ha- you shouldn't even have this fight. If you were really a person of Christ, you wouldn't even have this struggle. That's the stuff he says. But one day, the sulking brute, brute beast in all of us, that part of us that looks at our neighbor and looks at the city and goes, you know, I'm just mad that I don't get all that stuff. I'm mad I don't have that life. One day we'll say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He who began a good work in you will finish it because Babylon is falling every day. It's falling every day in our heart. And the Lord Jesus Christ is nearing every day. We're closer today than we've ever been. So Babylon falls, Jesus comes closer, and you and I have reason to rejoice this Advent. As long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Pray with me.